Welcome to Come and Reason with Christian psychiatrist and author Dr. Tim Jennings. Together we will reason through complex issues to find evidence-based answers that harmonize scripture, science, and our life experiences. I'm your Come and Reason host, Charles Mills. It's time for yet another Q&A with Dr. J. I ask the questions and the good doctor offers practical guidelines to help find the answers. This program is sponsored by Come and Reason Ministries and Dr. Jennings joins us via Skype. Today's questions come from an online article I found on the Psychology Today website under the title, The Top Five Questions Everyone Asks a psychiatrist. So I thought I'd put those questions to our own resident doctor right here on our program. Dr. Jennings, are you ready to answer some very common questions? Sure. All right, here we go. Number one, what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? And I think that probably is the most common question. I would agree with you with that, Charles. And, yeah. and in fact, I've had many people confuse the two and confuse me. A psychiatrist, which is what my profession is, are physicians. Psychologists are not. As a physician, I went to medical school just like your family doctor or your cardiologist or your surgeon. I got the same medical four-year medical education. Uh, I did rotations in internal medicine and family medicine, pediatrics and OBGYN and surgery and all these things. And after I graduated medical school, then I did a four-year residency in adult psychiatry. So I got a bachelor's degree and then four years of medicine and then four years of residency in some specialty, uh, child and adolescent psychiatry have a fifth year residency rather than four. Mm -hmm. And there are other types of subspecialty in psychiatry like forensic psychiatry and others. So after high school, I've got 12 years of education, of formal education, and a psychologist typically has about seven years of education after high school. It's usually four years of bachelor's degree and then three more years to get their a doctoral in psychology. It's usually a PhD or a PsyD, and they don't have any medical training directly involved. They might have a lecture about neuroanatomy or something, but they don't have the four years of medical school that a psychiatrist has. Okay. And that would be the big difference. Wow, that's that's a lot of going to school. To and, and that makes wow. a big difference when you evaluate people with mental illness, because yeah. when I'm evaluating people with mental illness, I'm evaluating, um, okay, there's a person in my office presenting with these mental health symptoms or problems, yeah. and I'm evaluating, is this a manifestation of a physiological problem? Like, mm. for instance, when somebody comes in with depression and fatigue and lack of energy and loss of motivation and focus and concentration problems, well, one physical reason that that could happen would be hypothyroidism. Mm. Another one would be sleep apnea, uh, and there are nutritional things. So I'm thinking of physiological things that might be altering brain function that causes that presentation, but there may also be relational dynamics, which I also assess as there problem in their, in their marriage. But there also could be psychological problems. Are they having thought pattern problems and so forth? Psychiatrists have a broader range of understanding of the totality of the person. And also psychiatrists will have a great understanding related to the neurobiology and physiological interventions that can help the brain function better, such as psychopharmacology or transcranial magnetic stimulation or other such treatments. Okay. All right. Question number two. And I have to be honest here. I, I sometimes think this, Dr. Jennings, when I'm talking with you. Are you analyzing me right now? So you were in the arena of you and I working together on a radio program or me dealing with people. And then you jumped into the arena of, do you do that with patients? people in my office coming to, to be evaluated. Ah, well, of course, with my patients yes. coming in my office, I'm assessing and analyzing because that's what they're there for me to do. Ah. Okay. 
But on the street, in my Bible study classes, when I'm talking to people, people over to my home, I go to potluck after church, am I analyzing people? Only if their behavior is so outside the standard that everybody else in the room is also analyzing them. Okay, all right. And you know what I mean by that. You've seen people at the places where everybody's going, what's going on with that? (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Maybe in those moments, I have a more accurate ability to analyze that process and come up with a more likely assessment of what it is than the average person. But no, I'm not analyzing you, Charles. We're interacting. We're working together. I'm not analyzing you at all. And likewise, I don't analyze people when I'm just interacting with them in my class or other places, unless they come into my office for that purpose. All right. Very good. Question number three from Psychology Today website, the most common questions that people ask psychiatrists, and I'm asking Dr. Jennings today, isn't it depressing Dr. Jennings, listening to people's depressing stories all the time, don't you get depressed by it? That's a really interesting question, and there's some assumptions built into the question. And the assumption is that that all I can do is listen. Mm. And there are some therapists out there, I know them, counselors, and there are some patients that that's what they pursue. They just want somebody to vent upon, Mm. to dump upon, to go and just tell their story and leave. And that's all. That's not how I practice. So I I don't get depressed by hearing very depressing and discouraging stories because I am seeing it through the lens of, okay, what can we do to heal? What are the interventions to resolve the pain, to restore the mind, to heal the heart, to get this person highly functional again to where they're not depressed and they're not distraught and they're not suffering anymore? So I am seeing past the symptomology that they're telling me in the story to the healing that comes in the same way a doctor who maybe sees somebody with a, you know, a a broken bone isn't thrown off by that. If they're an orthopedic surgeon, they know exactly how to fix that and restore the person to health. So I see challenges and opportunities to bring healing. What does discourage me, I wouldn't say depresses me, I don't really feel that's the case, but discourages me are mindsets of individuals who have no interest in actually helping themselves. Mm. There are individuals who do come from time to time, and their primary focus is to maintain themselves in the sick role. They don't want to get well. They resist interventions that are designed to bring you. They argue against it. And that's because the sick role for them has benefited them some way in the real world, whether it's they're getting a disability check for their disability. And therefore, if they don't have the disability, they can't get the check anymore. So they will never give up the disability that occasionally or sometimes happens or whether it's more subtle than that, that in their circle of friends and family, they have never had to shoulder responsibility. They get shielded from all the life burdens because of their symptomology. And everybody takes extra weight on them to carry this person through life. And if they didn't have this, then they would have to start sharing response. So I have some patients from time to time that have no interest whatsoever in actually becoming the highest level of functioning that they're able to achieve within their capacity and biological and other limitations. And we all don't have the same capacity. And those are the ones that I have frustration with. 
It seems to me, Dr. Jennings, that we Christians should also have that type of attitude when it comes to looking at the world. We have the answer. We have, the, we have Jesus. We have his sacrifice to share and to give and to motivate people. So when we look at the sadness and the, and the, the anger and the, the, the toxins of the world, we can be affected by it, but we shouldn't be conquered by it because we have the answer. Would I be right in saying that? You're exactly right. We have a Savior who has solutions that can heal our hearts and minds, even if we still suffer in our bodies. Question number four of the most common questions on Psychology Today website that people ask psychiatrists, do mental disorders really exist? I guess it depends on how you define a mental disorder. Mm. The way I define it, well, yes, Alzheimer's disease and therefore Alzheimer's dementia really exists. We can do brain biopsies and we can show the pathology and we can walk through the actual disease state that's destroying the brain. We can document, yes, this disease really is a schizophrenia. Now, I guess maybe where it can be confusing, schizophrenia is a diagnosis that probably has a multitude of underlying causes. Mm. The diagnosis is based on constellation of symptoms and dysfunction, loss of touch with reality, hallucinations, delusions, irrational thought processes, lack of drive, motivation. There's a lot of constellation of symptoms that are consistent that result in the diagnosis of schizophrenia. But what we've discovered is that there is a wide range of different genetic vulnerabilities or gene defects that contribute to this. There's early fetal developmental toxins or exposures that can happen that can alter brain development that contribute to this. There are certain other pathogens that can happen later in life that can and alter brain function that contribute to this. And so schizophrenia is probably not one single thing with one single cause, but the, but the constellation of symptoms are similar across the board. And so maybe people, because they, they've heard that, well, it can be caused by this or caused by that, maybe, maybe they're questioning whether it, it is, in fact, a real thing. Well, yes, it's a very real thing. And schizophrenia would be a brain-based illness, but what is the ultimate cause of this? Well, we're still discovering the brain is still a complex and, in many ways, mysterious organ. All right, our final question today from the Psychology Today website, the common questions that patients ask psychiatrists. And this is, again, I'm reading a question here. I didn't write this. If psychiatrists are medical doctors, does that mean you can prescribe something for me? And then the question is, will you? So psychiatrists are medical doctors, and they do and can prescribe medication. And so the answer, yes. And if you're in a doctor-patient relationship with a psychiatrist, then the doctor can and often does prescribe. But the doctor 
whether it's a family doctor or a cardiologist or a surgeon or a psychiatrist, physicians do not prescribe medicines to people who are not in a doctor-patient relationship with them. So just as someone you meet on the street or a friend or, or somebody says, hey, you're a doctor, can you write? No, of course, I cannot do that because I have to assess you, understand what your circumstances are, understand the potential risks of a medicine, what the benefits are. We have to have that conversation. And so the prescribing of the medicine happens under the umbrella of a doctor-patient relationship. So I won't prescribe for people that I have not assessed in order to provide that treatment. Also, just because somebody was my patient at one point in time doesn't mean I'll prescribe for them now. I have many patients who have left. They were here for, for college and they graduated and they went back home. And I've been doing this for 30 years now. And if somebody I saw that hasn't been in my office in years said, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm visiting town and I need a prescription. Well, okay, great. If you would like to reestablish as a patient, then you can make an appointment, come in, get reassessed because I need to know where you are, what's happened since, what medicines that you may have added over the years or what's your health condition at this point. So just because they've even been a patient of mine in the past, they're not a current patient, I still won't prescribe. All right, there we go. The five most common questions people ask psychiatrists, according to Psychology Today website and the answers from our very own Dr. Tim Jennings. Comeandreason.com is our website. If you want to fill your prescription of questions and wonderings and curiosity, I recommend that little online pharmacy, comeandreason.com. And let's make that clear. This is not a real pharmacy. This is a, a thought pharmacy, an idea pharmacy, okay? Prescriptions for your mind. Oh, I like that. Prescriptions for your mind. <laughs> Very good. You'll find prescriptions for... Bible studies and podcasts and television programs, books and tracks, comeandreason.com. Fill them there. Dr. Jennings will be very happy for that. All right, listener, this program was sponsored by Come and Reason Ministries. And Dr. Jennings, thank you so much for sharing with us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Charles. And listener, until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Dr. Tim Jennings wishing you God's presence in your life. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for spending time with us today. To continue the journey, I urge you to visit comeandreason.com. Here you'll find many excellent resources to help you gain a deeper understanding of the God we all love and serve. That's at comeandreason.com. This is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, inviting you to join us the next time we come and reason together. <music>